Good morning, everybody. I guess I should say, correct that and say, great morning, everybody. Thank you, David, Vicky, Fern. Where's Fern? Okay. <laughs> Rod, Wally, Becky, Michael, DJ, just for organizing and leading us through that first part of the service. Not sure there's much more to be said after that. But it's so appropriate that we share those elements, those things that remind us of Jesus' body and blood on Easter Sunday. This, of course, being the most important day of the Christian calendar. This morning, we do celebrate the fact that Jesus rose from the grave, don't we? He conquered death. We're going to look this morning at a story, the story that happened almost 2,000 years ago. We're going to look at some of the evidence that shows, indeed, it's a true story. We're going to consider why it matters. What's in it for you? What's in it for me? And if this is a true story, what are we going to do about it? Many of the things we do here at Bible Fellowship Assembly help us get along in our society. We share friendships. We help each other out. We support each other during tough times. We celebrate good times together. All things that help us get along in this world. But if the Easter story isn't true then all we have is a glorified social club and one that's founded on a fictional story. A few weeks back, uh, one of my co-workers shared an interesting uh, presentation that he had seen. And the speaker in this presentation said, you know, people's values affect whether or not you accept some information that's put before you. So if the information put before people supports their values, then they're going to say, aha, look at that. And they're going to point to it. And they're going to point others to it and say, see, here's proof. If they don't support it, or if it doesn't support their values, they're going to say, nah, that's flawed. Look at the, look at the survey design on that. Oh, no. You, know, you can never replicate that one again. You can't find it. Forget it. Throw it out. And sometimes... People on both sides will argue that the information supports both their positions, even though they're opposing. Let's use an example. If somebody said the change in the speed limit back there to 60 is good, they might say, hey, look, 80% of the people are now obeying the speed limit. It works. It's done its job. Somebody on the other side is going to say, no, no, look at your facts. Tell me 20% of the people don't obey it. It's not working at all. Nobody supports it. And the others, they just, they always drove too slow anyway, so the speed limit didn't make any difference for them. So depending on where you're coming from, people are going to accept or reject things in a different, because it supports their position. And actually, what they found in this is 
if you if your values are contrary to what this information is saying, it's actually going to polarize you and push you even further away, which seems really strange. But ever since the first Easter morning, people have claimed that Jesus never rose from the dead. Some argue he never died in the first place. Some think, oh, the women went to the wrong tomb. Some say it's a legend. It's just a big hoax. Many people had and still have a lot to lose if this story isn't true. It undermines some people's foundational beliefs, uh, sometimes the belief that there is no God. It can affect people's livelihoods. It shatters people's pride and just means that the individual person, each of us, is not the most important thing in the universe. There is someone who is more important than us. And we can't do it all on our own. We need help. I would suggest to you that the historical facts prove that Jesus rose from the dead. Many people have tried to prove otherwise. And once they really took a close look, they became believers themselves. They realized Christ's resurrection is indeed real. You can't objectively look at the information or evidence and argue it didn't happen. There can only be one conclusion. I'm not going to get too far into the various arguments and details that support this. Uh, you can look further into that on your own if you're so inclined. Uh, there's lots of really good material out there. And um, if people want to dig deeper into that. One I found ha- provided a really nice, concise overview uh, was actually one from Lee Strobel. If you want something with more details, but uh, you have to kind of look it up, some of that stuff up yourself a bit more, Josh McDowell is a great reference. And of course, there's all kinds of other great references out there you can look at. So my purpose this morning is just to help lay a foundation and highlight some of the key implications. Life is about making choices. Some choices result in good things happening. Some choices come with serious consequences. So let's look at the story of Easter. I'm going to look at uh, some, some verses from John chapter 19. Down to chapter 20, verse 8. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body... The two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, 
as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. One of the arguments that people have suggested over the centuries is that Jesus never really died on the cross and therefore never had to rise from, rise from the dead. The Bible tells us that Jesus was beaten and then scourged before he was crucified. Words fall short to describe just how brutal that beating was. The Hebrew people had set a limit of 40 lashes on if they were doing anything like that, if that, they were involved in that. But these rules didn't apply to the Romans. People were flogged with leather whips and they had pieces of metal and bone in them. So these would just help rip the flesh, tear the skin off. The whipping was so bad that often bones, veins, muscles, internal organs were exposed. And it was so bad that people often died just from the scourging. Then Jesus is led to be crucified. The Bible tells us that Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry his cross. And we can assume from that that Jesus could not physically do it himself. Just out of curiosity, anyone here ever hit their funny bone on something? Anyone uh, stubbed their foot or dropped something on your foot at any point in time? Did it hurt? So if you think of this and you magnify any of that pain by about a thousand times or probably even more, that's what Jesus went through. He paid the price for our sin. Now, people were nailed to the cross with long spikes, kind of tapered to the point. Apparently, they're about five to seven inches long. And they're nailed through the wrists, which would have been considered part of the hand in those days, and through the feet. And when they went through them, they would have crushed some of the nerves. So if you think just how much pain that even something little is, imagine that something's just gone and just crushed the nerve and is just throbbing, aching. I think the word there is excruciating. 
And once on the cross, it was difficult to breathe because you couldn't exhale. To exhale, you had to push up so that you can actually exhale. But, oh, how do you do that? Oh, you push down on that spike that's through your feet to exhale. And then finally, a soldier thrust a spear through Jesus' side and out came water and blood. The spear would have punctured the heart, but Jesus was already dead by that time. His heart was broken for each of us. Now, the soldiers didn't have the medical technology we have today. They couldn't hook him up to any machines and detect as to whether or not he was still alive. But these were trained professionals. They knew what death was. They saw it and they knew he was dead. And on top of that, they risked their own lives if he wasn't dead. There was no way that they could allow him to come down and not be dead. Now, even if Jesus actually didn't die, which I don't believe, and the evidence doesn't show us that, could he have survived without food and water for the remainder of that time? Could he have got out of those linen clothes that we read about that he was wrapped in, wrapped in linen cloths with spices, which, by the way, would have made them that much harder to get out of? Could he have rolled away the stone and got out uh, with nobody seeing him or noticing? Oh, and then could he have walked the ten or so kilometers to Galilee where he appeared to the disciples? I think not. Some would argue that Jesus' body was moved either by disciples or Joseph or others. In Matthew we read, Next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will arise. Therefore order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away. And tell the people he is risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. In those days, the people believed that the soul would continue on after death. But nobody was expecting Jesus to rise and be seen again in physical human body. The Bible is pretty clear that the disciples didn't understand what Jesus meant, even though he told them he was going to rise again until after this happened. I find it interesting that the chief priests and the Pharisees actually remembered Jesus was going to say that, and they went and took precautions so that this couldn't happen. We also learn from Matthew's Gospel that the guards were bribed to say disciples took away the body while they slept. I think this story falls apart pretty quickly when Jesus reappears on the scene. Likewise, some have suggested that Joseph himself moved the body in the night. It was just convenient that the tomb was there close by. Oh, he was going to use it for himself later on. Uh, I don't think this considers the fact that Joseph didn't make friends with the other religious leaders in being a follower of Jesus and asking for his body because the bodies in those days when taken down from the cross, would have been thrown into a common grave. And that would have been the fate of Jesus' body as well, had Joseph not done this. And I'm sure that 
the other Pharisees and the other leaders would have been more than happy to find out who helped Joseph move the body, if that was the case, and produce the remains just to prove that this didn't really happen. Some would argue that the women went to the wrong tomb. In Luke 23:55, we read that the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and saw how his body was laid. The suggestion is made that, you know, these women were in distress. Yeah, they saw the tomb, but they're still grieving. They're in incredible grief. It's dark. And then... When they heard somebody start talking, they ran away before they could finish hearing what the person said. Again, if the women really did go to the wrong tomb, the opposition could have produced that body and disproved the claim that Jesus rose. It's also been said that the Gospels give conflicting stories, so we can't believe what we read. One speaks of the gardener, one of angels, There's differences in who showed up in the tomb and so on. The key point in each of these Gospels is the same. The tomb was empty. He rose from the dead. The secondary details differ, but that makes sense when you consider that each Gospel writer wrote from a slightly different perspective. If four people went to the same wedding, would all their accounts be the same? Would they all focus on saying that the same people were present? Would they all focus on the same details? Probably not. None would deny that the wedding happened, that two people got married. But if the standard is that everybody who reports has to report exactly the same thing, we must all wipe out the history books. That's an unattainable standard, and it's not one that we hold any other piece of literature to. Something this was just legend. It was just a fabrication. As we've heard in the first part of the service, Jesus rose and appeared to various people. Michael read this in 1 Corinthians 15. Now I remind you, brothers of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the, all the apostles. Last of all, as one to untimely born, he also appeared to me. Now, verses 3 to 8 were actually part of a a creed or a statement of belief that was recited in the early church. Paul was one of the eyewitnesses, and Paul was the writer of 1 Corinthians, not disputed at all. And the eyewitnesses were convinced that they saw the resurrected Jesus. It motivated them to go and spread the word. And this creed was used well before things could change, where before people could start making up stories, and it could have been used in the early church almost as early as two to eight years after the event happened. 
Now, the eyewitnesses, as I said, they were convinced they saw Jesus. Would they make this up? Hmm. Consider the disciples. All of the disciples died a martyr's death going out and proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Would they all have done that for something they knew to be a lie? If you think of a a couple of individuals, think of Peter. He was an outspoken individual and he wore his heart on his sleeve. He was with Jesus when he was transfigured on the mountain. And we can see this in Mark chapter 9. Where Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he is transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, immensely white, so as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for he was terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Peter told Jesus he would lay down his life for him. However, he turned and denied Jesus three times when Jesus was taken away. After he rose from the dead, Jesus told Peter what kind of a death he would die. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk where you wanted, but when you were old, you were stretched out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show what, by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after seeing this, he said to him, follow me. Peter was crucified, and apparently he was crucified upside down. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus talks about his family. And in Mark 6, we learn that he had a brother named James. It seems that James did not believe in Jesus during his earthly ministry. And you can see this in Mark chapters 3 and chapter 6. As we see in the book of Acts, Jesus appears to James. The same brother who did not believe became a leader in the church. And he hung on to that and was martyred for his faith. Legend or fabrication? Nah. Some feel the disciples or others were simply hallucinating. They were so upset that their minds were playing tricks on them. Apparently, hallucinations belong to the individual. They aren't shared, and they aren't experienced by whole groups of people. But that's what we have with the eyewitnesses. Jesus appeared to numerous people and even to a group of 500 people all at once. And they all saw the same thing. Hallucinations apparently are fairly rare. They're often caused by drugs or some kind of a a bodily deprivation. And again, that doesn't fit well with the account that we have here and Jesus appearing to different people at different times. And Jesus conversed with people. He ate with them. They could touch him. Not things that you can see in a hallucination. Now, my wife, Linda, probably thought I was hallucinating earlier this week. We were putting the, uh, changing the banners at the back of the church. 
And I was convinced we were missing the one that said, He is risen. And I was going to even go find the picture I took of these two banners. I thought I had one. Uh, Unfortunate for me, I couldn't find the evidence to support my claim. But I have to believe the eyewitness who coordinated the making of these banners. (laughs) By the way, there is one that's done as a set, but uh, where the words go together, but that shows up at Thanksgiving. We can go on and we can look deeper into the different arguments that people have put forward and continue to put forward against the resurrection. But I think the conclusion is pretty clear. Jesus died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. Ladies and gentlemen, again, the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. And hence we can sing, Alleluia, Alleluia. So what are the implications for us? What does this mean for our lives? Jesus died for the sin of the world, including ours. The sin in the Son of God paid the penalty for each of us. And we were singing about that this morning, weren't we? Miraculous things happened when he died. As Dave J. mentioned, everything went dark for a while. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The earth shook. Tombs were opened. His resurrection is a miracle himself as well, just as his birth was. All of us had or have mothers, but only Jesus was born of a virgin. Only Jesus can say he is the Son of God and one with God. The Father. John 14 tells us, this is Jesus speaking, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And he said to him, Sorry, and you know the way where to be where I am going, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Luke's account of the crucifixion, there were two robbers. One railed against him and the other turned to him. And Jesus assured him that truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus tells us there is paradise, there is a heaven. He also talks about a place that we don't want to be. We heard a bit about, uh, we got reference this morning to Lazarus. Brother Mark talked about this a couple of weeks ago. There was a rich man and there was a poor man named Lazarus. And we won't read, read this all, but at the end of the day, poor Lazarus dies and he's taken to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man is in torment in the fire. And he asks that Lazarus be sent over to help him. And the reply is that he had all the good things on life. Lazarus didn't. And he said, there's a great chasm here. That none can cross. So there's heaven and there's hell. And there's a chasm in between. 
We also know that Jesus raised another Lazarus, his friend Lazarus. And when he did that, he said, afterwards he told, told them that I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, and yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Something else that was read this morning from 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, and by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. It's been said that there are two certainties in life. Anyone? Death and taxes. For the Christian, that's not a guarantee either, is it? The Bible tells us Jesus will return one day and those who belong will be taken up with him in the twinkling of an eye. So Jesus rose from the dead. He pointed to the fact there's a heaven and there's a hell. Perhaps you know in your mind that the resurrection is real. If so, has this affected your heart? Our choice determines our destiny. The only way to get to heaven is by putting your faith in Jesus and making him the Lord of your life. Romans 10 and 9 tells us that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. As Wally shared earlier, when we put our trust in Jesus, we no longer live under the law or a strict set of rules. In verse 14, told us we live by God's grace and we're led by his spirit. We have a new life now if we're in Christ. We live our lives in such ways to honor God. This is the so-called cost of being a Christian. Jesus came to give us life and he came to give us life abundantly. And I would suggest to you, letting him lead is not a hardship. It's what makes life worthwhile. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, in the risen Son, as your personal Lord and Savior, I'd urge you to do so today. If you are a Christian, I'd urge you to draw closer to him. As we sung earlier, let's turn our eyes upon Jesus. Let's change things in our lives that pull us away from him. Let's reflect on his love and let's go share it with others. Happy Easter. I'd ask uh, Dave, Vicky, the other musicians to come up and lead us in a, a closing song at this point. Heavenly Father, indeed, it is a great morning. We just thank you, Father, for your love, the love that sent Jesus to the cross for us. We thank you, Father, that he conquered death and he rose from the dead. And we thank you that we share in his victory. Father, if there's one who's never committed their lives to Jesus, I pray that this would be the day. What a great day that would be on Easter Sunday. And Father, help us all just to go out, to turn away from sin, to turn to you, to let you be Lord of our lives. And help us, Father, to go and to share that and to bring the glory and honor to you because you're the one who deserves it. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.